Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. In this episode, I sit down with Brian Leach, the visionary founder and CEO of Ibotta, who has built an incredibly successful business over the past decade. What's interesting about Brian is that he has all the external trappings of success. He started an amazing company that's now over 800 people. He's won all sorts of awards, including EY's Entrepreneur of the Year for the Rocky Mountain region. And he is really looked up to by the entire entrepreneurial community. At the same time, he is a tremendous advocate for well-being and resiliency among entrepreneurs. In this episode, Brian delves into the critical role of mental and emotional resilience in entrepreneurial success and uncovers the reality behind the entrepreneurial journey, which is a path filled with challenges, learning, and growth. So let's uncover the deeper story behind his success. Thanks for listening to the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian Leach, founder and CEO of Ibotta. Brian Leach, hey, welcome to the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Great to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Now, in terms of context, you are the founder and CEO of Ibotta, which is a well-known, very successful company based here in Colorado. For our audience, give us an idea of what has gone on into building that company, uh, how long you've been at it, and the current sort of scope and size and offering of Ibotta. Sure. Uh, Ibotta is a leading cashback rewards network in the United States. Uh, we are following our mission of making every purchase rewarding. Uh, we not only have our own direct-to-consumer mobile app, which has over 50 million registered users, we also power large loyalty programs like Walmart Cash, Kroger Cash, Dollar General Cash as a white label uh, provider of that content, that offer content. You know, the business has uh, been in business for 12 years. We're about 800 employees. Uh, the company has given away $1.6 billion in cash back to American consumers. And you can think of it as kind of like a modern update of a, of a coupon for everyday items in the store. Bread, milk, eggs, cheese, diapers, beer. And these are high-frequency purchases that people make. And we work with consumer packaged goods companies like Coca-Cola, Unilever, Kellogg's, Kraft, Heinz, uh, to help introduce their products and, and, and deliver digital promotions to over 200 million consumers, 91% of American households. As far as my own journey, previously, I was a partner at a law firm uh, focusing on international arbitration. And... You know, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that with the rest of my career. Uh, I was coming back from a conference in Rio on international arbitration. And I saw a picture, a, a woman rather on the plane, taking a picture of her, her receipts for expense reimbursement. And it just got me thinking about the value of a kind of granular purchase data. Uh, and that's why the company's called Ibotta, all the things we buy, right? I bought a bag of groceries, et cetera. Um, it was also $8 on GoDaddy, which was compelling at the time. 
Anyway, you know, we, from there, we, we really ran with the experiment of what if consumers could benefit from the uses of their own purchase data? Um, if you kind of cut consumers in on the deal, how could you create a more efficient form of advertising or promotion? Um, and then ultimately, we introduced the first ever performance-based uh, marketing tool in CPG, meaning we charge on a fee per unit sold basis, not for impressions, not for clicks. Uh, if it doesn't work, if we can't prove a one-to-one correlation uh, to a sale that we track all the way out to a retailer's sale of your product, you know we don't charge you for that. And we work with 2,250 different CPG brands uh, in the United States. So that gives you a general sense of kind of where we are and, and how long we've been doing it and where I've come from. Fantastic. Thank you. And, you know, it's wonderful to have people like you on the show because, you know, by all external measures, you are ticking all the boxes. Founder decided to quit your uh, legal job and jump in and do something else. Very successful company, 800 people, really found a tremendous market out there. And uh, it's really interesting because I know for you, the concepts of founder mental health and resilience and well-being really resonate. And I've heard you say before that you fall into the category of what we might call an anxious achiever, meaning your life has been, you know, pursuit of certain goals. Tell us about uh, how this orientation toward achievement has gotten you to where you are today and the pitfalls and friction points you've experienced along the way. Yeah, that's a great question. And when you're growing up, you're, you are the product, you are the student, you are trying to get the best grades you can get into the best university you can. And if you get praised for being good at that, you know, you continue to want to seek that praise. And so uh, you learn that being associated with certain institutions is a kind of conferred prestige. You know, I went to Harvard, I was uh, incentivized to try to get into a good law school, I went to Yale Law School. You know, once at Yale Law School, I was incentivized to try and clerk for the Supreme Court. I clerked for the Supreme Court. And so I just kept chasing these brass rings uh, from from high school, really, or even earlier than high school, when it was I set out to be the valedictorian of my high school, all the way until I was around 34 years old when I had a little bit of a crisis and realized, well, if I'm really solving for happiness, that might be different than solving for achievement. Uh, you can achieve and achieve and achieve and achieve, but what is it you've achieved? Um, and so I think I realized that uh, at that point, even with the most sterling credentials, having gone to Harvard and Oxford and Yale and clerk for this person or that, uh, I was still fundamentally not sure that I'd be happy if I continued practicing law for the next 20 years. You know, I made partner and it, it was just kind of, I can't do this without any variability for, for that many years. And so I started to take a step back and really uh, re-examine the way that I had lived my life, which was really based on kind of what I had been praised for doing and was good at. I mean, you, you enjoy doing the things you're good at, and then you want to do them more and you get better at them. I wasn't good at sports in high school. I got cut in eighth grade from the basketball team. So I didn't have that positive feedback loop around team sports. What I had it around was kind of academic achievement. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of that leads to a path where fundamentally you're not taking that much risk because you're looking for the safe harbor of I'm partner, I have a tenure track kind of job, or I'm affiliated with this august institution. And I think the mindset of the entrepreneur is is rather different, right? You have to learn how to take risks that make sense. And, and you have to learn to stand 
on you know the, the the go forward strength of a creative idea that you have, not rely on the saleability of your credentials. I mean, when I would pitch myself for a legal case, very much, well, here's where I went to law school, here's who I clerked for. No one cares in, in the business world at all. I mean, can you deliver results? What is your annual EBITDA? What is your growth rate? Um, and so you're putting yourself into an environment where you're being judged based on your 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 creative uh, output today, but it's also an environment where you are collaborating. It's not a it's not an individual as product. It's it's you know you are part of a team that's helping uh, that's trying to solve problems before you run out of money in the effort to solve them. And it's a constant battle to reach the next milestone before someone tells you sorry you ran out of time. And so to do that, if you take the same mindset of you know I'm gonna achieve my way through this, it doesn't really translate. Uh, but I think a lot of founders fall into the habit of trying to kind of project this notion that they have it all figured out. Don't worry, I'm mm-hmm. safe to follow because they're worried about people figuring out that they they don't really have all the answers. They feel like an imposter. And so I think you have to kind of re- almost retrain your mind um, to go at the problem of leadership differently than you went at the problem of achievement before. Um, and I think you also have to figure out um, how to build the muscle of rebounding from emotional setbacks and failure at a much higher rate than you ever did, you know, when you were striving to be a lawyer. I mean, we we were always paid to be right as lawyers. If you go into being an entrepreneur thinking, I've always got to seem to be right, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. And then every time you fail, if you think, oh my gosh, you know, this is the end of the world, people are going to tell that I'm an imposter and not want to follow me anymore which is maybe how you feel if you're marketing your expertise as a lawyer and you lose a bunch of cases. I'm not going to hire that guy. He, he's a loser. But that's kind of different in the business world. So it's really a, a pretty significant reframing of how you think about what you're doing in the world. Um, and it's taken me a better part of a decade, I would say, to, to gain some degree of self-awareness into that. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you got to learn to love the game or love the process itself of building a company as opposed to simply chasing the the achievement. Well, I, I've got to say, Brian, uh, that quitting a job as a lawyer and uh, starting a company does not sounds like a non-obvious route to happiness. Let me put it that way. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs that we know would agree that, that uh, you chose a very difficult path. There's no doubt. And I think it's a question of what is your happiness. I wouldn't recommend that everybody just go start a company. I knew that it was going to be a different kind of stress. For me, I wanted more uh, creativity in my life. You know, I, I had a lot of analytical kind of left brain activity as a lawyer where uh, strategy, uh, et cetera. But, but the process of creating, designing, building, birthing something uh, into the world that never existed before, it felt to me like just having done that would be you know, enough or a win. Now, what you do to yourself is you then move the goalposts uh, to where that process of creation by itself is no longer enough. And part of the reason why people invest in you, people like me, is because I do have a track record of essentially obsessive perfectionism and anxious achievement. And because they know that's going to be harnessed to, to help make them money, they're more likely to give me money. And so it is useful, um, but you have to know how to turn it on and off or how to put it in perspective or it will burn you out and drive you crazy before you're ever actually successful in the in the venture. Mm-hmm. I've heard you say before that... Uh... The most humbling thing you can do is to start a company. Tell us what you meant by that. Well, I mean, in, in the world of law, in the in the halls of the Ivy League schools, you know, you're constantly being told what a special snowflake you are and, 
how, you know, you've always gotten straight A's and now you're at the most august institution and you're great because you went there, all these things. You don't have uh, a lot of humbling moments, I guess is one way to put it. It's, it's um, possible to kind of, you know, follow a very prescribed path and uh, almost, almost designed in some ways, like being a professor, I have tenure, being a partner, I have tenure. It's designed to kind of shield you from truly looking in the mirror. I mean, partners don't have to really sustain uh, a, a critique from the associates or counsel. It's or pretty low or risk. Yeah, you, you kind of, unless you do something horrendous, you still get to keep your job. Well, in the world of entrepreneurship, it's the opposite of that. You are out there on limited time having to think about uh, the, the right strategy, the right way to manage a team, build a culture, all those things, and you're, you're living on borrowed time. And you make mistakes more often than you find product market fit. And so right out of the gate, you're getting rejection. I mean, I had uh, 200 people reject me when I went to try to raise money the first time. I had people tell me I was dressed the wrong way. I had people tell me I was in an industry that was completely uninteresting, that the fact that I never had a prototype was a problem. The fact that I couldn't write code was a problem. The fact that I didn't have any other team members was a problem. And on and on and on. The fact that I was in Denver was a problem. And so right out of the gate, it's just mass serial rejection, uh, which is total, totally an onslaught of the unfamiliar. It's also just inherently unpleasant, but it's, it's growth. And you realize that I, oh, I was solving for comfort, not growth. And you, you can't really grow and maximize comfort at the same time. It's one or the other. When you start a business, the ultimate expression of desire to grow. It's the ultimate expression of, of desire to learn who you really are under pressure and, and, and really develop that level of kind of self-awareness that can only happen under extreme conditions. And that's true in the wilderness under extreme conditions. It's true in the wilderness of business under extreme right. conditions. So in that way, you are you are suddenly forced to find out what you're really made of and what your metal is. And that process is both toughening and deeply humbling. Yeah, it's uh, waking up to, to find out what it feels like to get punched in the face basically every day. Yes, that's a yeah. good working definition. Yes, right. <laughs> two steps forward, one step back, or some days is one step forward, two steps back. And, you know, just trying to figure it out as you go. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it takes going through it enough times to realize that I don't know how we will get out of it this time, but somehow we will get out of it again because we always have gotten out of it in the past. It's almost, it's the closest thing to faith uh, that I have, you know, which is <laughs> somehow we collectively, we will sort this out and, and, and the answer will present itself. Um, and so, but the first two, three, four, five times you go through it, you also might be carrying around this kind of media conception of how a hockey stick looks or how a great company performs, which is a very romanticized and inaccurate description of how almost every company achieves success. Mm -hmm. Sure, every now and then you have a Google story, someone goes in, builds the incredible whiz bang product and just goes, you know, hockey stick and the rest is history. But that's almost uh, statistically non-existent. Much, much more. You, know, you have Facebook. Those are the ones that people make the movies like the social network about. But you don't see as many movies about, you know, a sort of upward trending sign curve where every week is is a big reversal of fortune or every quarter. And you really then you find product market fit and away you go. And, and you might describe that as the much more likely path of even the small subset of success stories that arise out of companies that are started. So I think that if people expected that emotionally and mentally, if that was their mental model, it would be less jarring when, uh, when it happened, because you wouldn't say to yourself, what's wrong with me. Right. Well, what you're describing is, is such an issue in the 
startup, founder, entrepreneurial media, it, you know, we just tell the hero stories. We, we tell the Superman narratives of, well, hey, you know, I saw this problem in the market and then I went out and raised the money and did XYZ and then bang, you know, now we're all gajillionaires and everything's happy ever after. And what we try to do at both the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit and on this podcast is really reveal what I call the anti-hero stories. So what was really happening? What was it like on day 999? What was it like on those days when you just didn't want to get out of bed, you know, type of thing? And we, we, we come across against all these challenges and all we see are the, the bright side and the shiny side. And we don't necessarily talk about burnout, imposter syndrome, uh, when you merge your identity with your company and sort of become one and like all these, you know, mental health issues that, that can affect people. I'm curious about how you have kind of stepped into this role as an evangelist and a champion and someone who's passionate about this topic and um, what, what it was that really allowed you to start opening up and talking about this more, more broadly. Yeah, these are great critical topics. Thank you for giving me a chance to, to, to address them and to share my perspective on them because I don't hear a lot of founders and, and CEOs go out of their way to tell these stories because it generally makes them feel uncomfortable uh, and it doesn't do anyone a great service to, to continue to tell the hero stories versus the anti-hero stories. And, and I appreciate your effort to get all the Taylor Swift fans into this podcast as well with your anti-hero reference. So well played. Um, look, I mean, from my perspective, I grew up in a generation that was a little bit diluted from my parents' generation, but still largely felt that mental health was a, a taboo topic. Now, my parents would never talk about going to see a psychiatrist or a therapist or a counselor. It would be a pejorative term like, oh, gosh, that person sees a shrink. My generation yeah, it was a little bit more accepted, but it was largely something that you didn't talk about publicly. And so it wasn't really until I was about 40 years old that I began to realize how incredibly valuable it would be for me to work uh, with a therapist every week. And I, I since then, have view it as an essential part of my overall health and ability to do my job. And then it wasn't until a little bit into that period of time uh, where I started to feel that I could speak about that publicly. Um, and then I kind of realized that if I, if I spoke about it publicly, it had no power over me, that the taboo or the stigma just disappeared. And then I realized that a lot of people would come up to me, including my former law partners or my colleagues or other entrepreneurs and say, gosh, you know, everybody feels that way. I wish I uh, had seen more of that or thank you for leading on that. And then I realized it was something that I had an obligation to talk about affirmatively because that is the case that, uh, you know, my old boss, Justice Souter, used to call it painting the bullseye. Mm -hmm. It's like you would fire an arrow wildly into the night and then see where it landed. Uh, but under cover of darkness, you would go to the side of the barn that it happened to hit and you would draw a very perfect bullseye right around where the arrow hit. And then come day, you're showing all the town and villagers that you have the most amazing aim of all time and you hit this from three counties away. And that's kind of what people do because uh, they think fundraising involves telling this kind of superhero story because it, it, it implies that they have some special qualities of genius that that are very backable, uh, not just fundraising, recruiting employees, recruiting clients. It's very tempting to sort of fall back on that uh, that storytelling trope that we have as a society, uh, which overemphasizes the contributions of the founder and, and hides all of the struggles of the founder uh, and also leads uh, everyone to kind of expect that, frankly. So other people around you in a founder-led organization may not lead or contribute or raise their voice or 
uh, be part of the solution because they they figure, well, I mean, Brian's going to take care of this. He's the founder, you know, and that yep. that mythology that comes from Hollywood, it comes from. Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned in a previous presentation that I gave a gentleman who sold a company, and I watched his kind of ta-da, look at me story on YouTube, and it it did a lot of violence to me as an early entrepreneur because it was kind of wow. Uh, why am I not like him? I, I, and I immediately went to, well, he has a degree in this. I don't have a degree. And and you start to kind of try to figure out what's wrong with you. Um, and this is the same with our thin worship society. It's the same with our our social media focusing on certain norms of beauty. That image, that, that lionization of one type of something that's beautiful or successful can be very damaging to, to the, the goal of having diversity, um, diverse mm. background. I mean, my background is completely different from another entrepreneur's background, but I would never want someone to think that they have to go to Yale Law School and clerk for a Supreme Court justice to be an entrepreneur. I've used the parts of that that are helpful, but I didn't go to business school. I don't know how to write code. Those would have been helpful. You know, I didn't yeah. start a company in high school. My, you know, there, there's a million other things that I could have worked with. And so I think it's important to keep a very broad uh, aperture when, when talking about what makes a successful entrepreneur. And I also think it's important to lead with emotional resiliency as a characteristic, because there's a lot of smart people who are uh, very unsuccessful as entrepreneurs. And I yeah. think the main reason why they're unsuccessful is not that they uh, were wrong about a potential product market fit or their strategy made no sense. It's that they buckled under the pressure of being uh, an entrepreneur over a sustained period of time, pulling enough rabbits out of hats and the emotional toll that takes on you. And they didn't disperse the burden of that across a team uh, effectively enough. And so they bonk. And that can show up in any number of ways in, in their performance. But uh, for me, that was always the biggest risk. It, it wasn't, I don't believe that I'll ever have another good creative idea or I won't know what to do when presented with three paths in the road, uh, fork in the road. It was always, uh, will what this takes out of me in the meantime ultimately mean that I have to stop doing this? Because it is an extremely grueling thing to do. The it's, it's interesting what, what part of what I hear you talking about is the pressure that the entrepreneur puts on themselves, right? It's my idea. It's my company. It's my thing. So one thing that happens is you merge your personality with the company, right? You're, you're basically Brian from Ibotta forever now <laughs> in some people's minds. Uh, but on top of that, we then have this culture. We have this view that provides a veneer of infallibility onto the founder itself, meaning I have to do everything perfect. People have to like me. I've got to win the customer. I've got to win the investor's trust. I have to do all this stuff. And we pile all these pressures on ourselves, all these shoulds, if you will, right? Get piled on ourselves. That is not going to reflect reality. That's going to wind up being something that causes burnout. There's going to be friction. There's going to be something that breaks in there. And so you know, I see I see people doing this. I see them getting way too personally vested, myself included, way too personally vested in the company where identities start to blend together. And then this thought that like, I'm the one who can power through and that can really, really uh, put you in a very low state if you hit burnout or if you start to lose inspiration and resilience. And it's such a difficult uh uh, kind of situation for a lot of entrepreneurs to emerge from. What have you done? Like, how how do you think about mental resilience, emotional resilience, 
How do you think about those things and how have you developed that muscle? Yeah, I agree with what you said. I think that there is a, a real uh, temptation to, uh, to try to instill confidence because you feel insecure yourself. Uh, in the first phases of being an entrepreneur, I recall basically selling my board members at every board meeting, reselling them on why, don't worry, I'm going to figure this out. I know what I'm doing. Uh, the more I said it, the more it was probably obvious I didn't know what I was doing. Then you get a little bit more confident. In the second phase, you're willing to share what the vulnerabilities are, the real problems, the real warts, because you have enough confidence that they're not going to boot you out just as soon as you identify a problem that you can kind of you know, be a bit more you know, transparent. And then the third phase is where you actually enlist their help and, and, and sort of actually use a board the way it's supposed to be used. And so I, I think a lot of people take a while to, to start to feel less imposter syndrome. They feel more secure either because they, they've achieved something small or an early stage of the business and, and they're then able to, to resist that crutch, that narrative a little bit. Um, it's it's almost inversely proportional. That, that's one of the most interesting things I've found as a leader is that the more vulnerable you are, the more you admit you don't know, the more you seek opportunities to apologize, take responsibility, the stronger you come across, the more authentic you are seen as a leader, the more effective you are. The more you tell people how you've got it figured out and you know, don't worry, follow me, the more they suspect this guy doesn't really have it figured out. And people are very savvy that way. So it's 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 a strange signal, but if you can get comfortable purposely talking about the problems or challenges or confusion or you know self doubt or it's one of the reasons I give these speeches is to is to build a sense of intimacy of realness of authenticity that people want to follow um, and so I think step one is uh, recognize that you're you're among everybody else in the way that you feel uh, which is you're not sure you're not sure how this whole thing ends if I'd like to say. If this problem can be solved, I will solve it. Well, that's very different than saying I will solve this problem. I mean, it might be a problem that does not admit of a solution, depending on how you frame the goal. Um, can you take a, a cashback rewards company and turn it into a $10 billion company? I don't know if anyone can. I think I can. Can it be done? I don't know. It remains to be seen. You know, there are, That's a really high bar. You could, you could say, can, can you start a company where at least one person will download an app relating to cashback? Yeah, you know, probably. But the the point is, if you're if you're really pursuing something ambitious, it's not clear if anyone can solve the problem. So you you take yourself out of that and the, and the sort of shooting on yourself, as you say, the blame. You take that out of it, and you just say, look, these are really hard problems. If these were not, they would have been solved already. So by definition, you've taken a contrarian view. The world thinks it can't be done, and maybe they're right. And that's no that's no commentary on you. So I think it's perspective. It's talking about it openly so that you're always reminding yourself as you're saying it that, wait, no, the hero thing is fake, right? Um, I think a, a couple other things I would just quickly note. One is make sure your investors have operated companies and been entrepreneurs. One of my pet peeves uh, is having investors who graduated from the GSB you know, last year and are telling you how to run your business. One of the problems you have with that is, is that Obviously, they've never run a business. They don't, they don't know the nuts and bolts of day-to-day -day management and the stresses of that. But also, they, they can't really support you when you're in a low or when you're in a period of wilderness or doubt. And so, because they just don't understand what you're going through, they would like to. I'm sure they're empathetic people, but they just have no frame of reference. So I look for investors, advisors, mentors who have sat in my seat, right? So people who are operators, who are managers, who are, who are creators, entrepreneurs. 
I think that's that's super important. Um, and then I think the last thing is to is to really think about how you disperse the load consciously onto other people around you. So if you don't start talking about the mission that we all are bought into, being stewards of that mission, our vision, celebrating other people who came up with ideas that then we pursued and were really successful, you're going to just continue to perpetuate the idea that it's it's sort of your success story. But with that comes all the failures are your failures that hang only around your neck. The mm-hmm. relief is when you feel truly like a problem is our problem. A lot of people who are successful are happy to share credit, but then when there's blame, they internalize all that blame on themselves. Mm. And what you need to be able to do is to share credit and share ownership and responsibility over the problem solving. So you're not putting the weight of the Western world on your shoulders all the time. Um, You're already going to do that to yourself enough because you're the person who went around and asked everybody for the money. I mean, I asked 51 people in my life, angel investors for money to back something that was a piece of paper or a PowerPoint deck. That's it. With a guy who'd never been an entrepreneur. That inherently puts a lot of pressure on yourself. You you want to think about whether that's something you want to do um, in terms of the emotional strain. But having done it, from there, you need to make sure it's not the Brian show. The, the merger problem you're talking about is very real. I used to have a license plate that said Ibotta. I got rid of it because it was symbolic of the merger of myself and my company. And mm-hmm. you have to create a world where if your company fails, you're still okay and proud of yourself. And you're still happy and, and you learn things and you can go on and try something different. It's very, very tempting uh, you think about a public company, you know, people are looking at their scorecard on the, on the stock price every single day. I mean, it, there are all these moments in the life cycle of a company where you're invited to become synonymous with your company. I mean, it's it, even you're nominated for an award and they cite the performance of your company. It, it's not the same thing. Sometimes you can be a phenomenal leader and you can fail. And sometimes you can be not a very good leader and you can have a very successful company. You know, the founder of WeWork has got an enormous net worth. Not that many people respect the founder of WeWork's values and and would want to emulate him. You know, sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. So it's hard to to remember what the scorecard is. It's not always you know net worth, money, whatever last private valuation. Um, so I think it's it's about uh, all of those components all the time. And it's not like you do it once and it's over. You're constantly having to fight the idea that. Failure is your fault and, and will be always and forever associated with you. And yeah, 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 there's other people, but ultimately the buck stops with you. And you want a little bit of that sense of, of self, you know, of, of accountability. Uh, but if it's dialed up too high, it will just uh, break you. Block your calendars for June 4th and 5th for the 2024 Conscious Entrepreneur Summit. Coming back to Boulder, Colorado, and now in its third year, The Conscious Entrepreneur Summit is the only in-person event that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. This is not your normal startup or leadership conference. We won't be talking about how to build a business plan, how to market or sell your product, or how to raise money. We also won't be talking about Bitcoin or AI. What we will talk about, though, are topics that are absolutely critical for you along your journey as an entrepreneur. Things like overcoming imposter syndrome, avoiding burnout, building resilience, and taking responsibility in your life. It's going to be a fantastic two days, and I would love for you to join us in June. 
Check out our website, which is consciousentrepreneur.us for more information. Thinking about the topic of uh, what you were saying, kind of internalizing versus externalizing the, the credit or, or when things go wrong, um, I'm really interested to hear how has your leadership style, how has your management style evolved since you started Ibotta? So you started as a solo founder, is that right? I was a solo founder in the sense that I raised the money for the company. Okay. I went to all those 51 people. I had the original idea for the company. And then people joined You know what you could think of as kind of the founding team or the original okay. team that came around me, the first employees. And many of them are still at Ibotta. And so how has your personal management style and leadership style changed as you've learned about the journey, as you've learned about the road that, that you've been on, and, and as you've come across building and scaling the team? I mean, I had absolutely no idea how to do that before I started Ibotta. You don't, I, I actually think that in high school, in college, in, in law school, in graduate school, I had many opportunities to, to think about how I show up in group settings, what my leadership style would be like, uh, where I would be good at something and, and need help in, in another area. And either I didn't, I didn't get any training in that, or I, I harbored a lot of you know, conceptions that I quickly disabused myself of. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you'd asked me in 2012, in my first week of the job in January of 2012, what kind of leader will you be? I probably would have said, I'll be a great manager. I'll be a great leader. And I, I might not be the person who builds the product, but I'm going to be the person who creates uh, the story, the vision, and I'm going to be a fantastic leader of the kind that I wish that I had at the law firm. Well, parts of that turned out to be very true and parts of that turned out to be very false. It turns out I don't think of myself as one of the best managers on our team. I think I'm, I'm proficient at it, but it's not something that I think, what, what, you know, in terms of helping people think through how to make themselves more productive, prioritize their day, uh, thinking about organizational design, that that's not actually really my passion. What, I'm, what I am good at, I was right, is storytelling. I was a stage actor, trial lawyer, tour guide. So yeah, I'm a good storyteller. That helps me with vision, investor relations, uh, recruiting clients, business development, et cetera. But I also turned out I really like the creative side. And I, while I don't write code, my, my contributions, whether it's whiteboarding or prototyping or testing out products in, in an iterative fashion, turn out to have a, a little bit of a knack for that, at least. Nothing, nothing you know, extraordinary. I'm not Waz. I'm not Jobs. But much better than I would have thought, having had that skill be completely dormant. So I think, first of all, the things you're going to be good at and not good at are, are, a, are a bit perhaps unknown to you until you give it a shot. And then I would say things can be learned. You can grow. I think there was, you know, my tendency as a as a leader early on was to not like to be disagreed with in public settings because of my insecurity uh, about whether that meant people would suddenly say the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to go post my job somewhere else. I, I lived in a lot of fear of abandonment uh, relating to uh, what would I do if this or that person on the team were no longer on the team. Maybe that's because uh, when I was 12 years old, my parents. Uh, surprised me with the news that they were getting divorced. And so I have a big hang up relating to kind of professional divorces, if you will. So I didn't really understand how deeply that ran until years later when I started working uh, with a therapist and understanding how episodes in my earlier life affected the way that I responded to uh, fight flight situations and, and, and sort of cortisol running through my system and how I could manage that. Um, and so 
Uh, those are examples of things that over time, if you now you know were to, to join our senior leadership team, I think you would find that we were uh, substantially less worried about open airing of disagreements. It's a completely comfortable thing, uh, as long as it's done in a, in a respectful and constructive way and not an I told you so way. I've also learned that to be effective, I need to be around a certain type of energy and not around a different type of energy. And there are people who I've had to uh, move on from working with who didn't have the right energy, at least for who I was. And I probably didn't create the right environment for them. But together, we weren't um, our best selves. Uh, Separately, we're better versions of ourselves. And so in finding the right composition and, and, and chemistry of that group, I can be the best version of who I am. And a lot of that comes down to trust, trust in letting go, right? When you start out, you're in charge of every single thing, marketing, sales, legal, you know, the the building that you're in, it's all on your plate. But as you get to be a 200 person, 500 person, 800 person company, uh, you back out of more and more and more things as you learn to trust other people to deliver and you take on more of kind of a, a, I'm going to define the outcome. You get to decide the process mindset. And that comes when you are reinforced in the trust. Every now and then someone will screw it up and then it will undo the trust. And then you have Mm -hmm. to build back that sense of, okay, I have to trust other people because I can't do this on my own. Now I I basically do business development, investor relations, strategy, you know, communicating to the company, but I'm not in charge of the product day to day. I'm not in charge of sales day to day. I'm not in charge of marketing. I'm not in charge of HR. And I have phenomenal people who are far better than me at all of those things, or at each of those things. And I have absolutely no concerns about needing to double check their day-to-day work because I trust them and I've seen that the results that they can deliver. And so I think from a world where, you know, we all had the experience in high school of working as the one smart kid on the group project. And you're like, I'll be damned if we're getting a B on this project. Give me the goddamn pen. I'll do it myself right? Or it's a chemistry lab or it's something where like, I am, my finger is in the dike of Western civilization. And by God, I'm not getting my first B on this because I trusted you morons, right? I mean, a lot of high achieving people have had that experience that I just described. Well, good luck with that attitude running a 500 person company. The answer is get people in who are better than you at that thing. And don't tolerate people who aren't better uh, at that thing. Because then you will not be able to resist the desire to kind of jump in and do it yourself. And so learning how to work in group settings, learning how you come across in group settings, learning how your energy creates a leadership wake behind you, uh, how, how your mood, how your stress level, how, how you're feeling about something radiates off of you and affects other people's willingness to, to share an idea or uh, makes them feel that you're upset with them when you're just critiquing their idea um, or, or makes them uh, otherwise not want to work at your company. Right. And so all of these, these kind of things about our own tendencies, we basically ignore throughout high school and college. No one focuses on them, but they're the things that explain why people advance where they advance in, in their careers. I mean, we've, we've had people with glittering, you know, the best business school credentials who are no longer at the company, several of them, because, of some self-awareness issue or emotional intelligence issue or chemistry issue. And we have people who have a single degree from a state school who are running the company and making the most money at the company. And it couldn't matter less where they went to college or what they studied or what their GPA was or where they went to high school or any of that. Because what matters is they are outstanding at getting stuff done in group settings and prioritizing and other things that 
allow them to go along and get along with other people. And so I think we massively underinvest in, uh, in, in self-awareness um, and, and understanding kind of the impact of, our, of how we show up on other people. If you plan to be a leader, I'd, I'd rather see a focus on that than acing your BC calculus exam. One of the sort of Bibles or reference books in the startup world and in the, in the entrepreneurial community is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And Great. in that, he says, uh, you know, at a, at a startup, there's only ever two emotions, terror and euphoria. And uh, with Ibotta, it's very clear that you've been, been hyper successful as a company. Tons of things have gone right. I'm sure you've had your moments of euphoria. Uh, he also in the book talks about the WFIO moments, which is we're fucked, it's over, uh, which as entrepreneurs, you know, we're feeling more often than not pretty much every week, probably every day for, for some people. Take us back to some of your WFIO, WIFIO uh, moments with Ibotta. What did you learn? How did you get through? How did that tee you up for the next one that you inevitably felt? Yeah, I mean, uh, so many that you couldn't possibly enumerate them, big and small. I mean, I've had five times the company's almost gotten bought, didn't happen, dashed my hopes, you know, oh, huge letdown. I've had situations where 17 straight investment funds said no, and we were, we were within you know, X months of running out of cash. I've had situations where we've been sued in a lawsuit for uh, you know, $500 per text message that we sent, allegedly in violation of the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And I asked our, our CTO how many we've sent, and he said something like 10 million. You know, so I'm doing the math of 500 times 10 million. Oh my gosh, you know, that's in the billions and we're, we're going out of business. Well, fortunately, we weren't in violation of that law and everything was fine, but, but there's so many. I mean, the first time we, we, we launched the app, there was a, somebody figured out you could kind of double submit receipts or submit fake receipts. And we hadn't yet figured out how to prevent that the way we do now. And I remember going to the, to, to I, writing a letter to the user and saying, we're going to report this to the FBI unless you come meet us at this corner in Denver. And we, <laughs> we went, we went and met this poor, terrified college student and walked into a bank branch and watched her deposit the money she stole from us at forty five dollars or whatever, four hundred fifty dollars. I don't know what it was. Back into our bank account. I mean, we've been through <laughs> things thick and thin, you know, that every company has, and I, I, even the best companies that you know that read the book uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. One of the big takeaways about Nike is that. 20 years into Nike, they were still one bad breakaway from instant bankruptcy. You know, the, the, the company was in business way before Michael Jordan was signed. And even up until 1980, it was touch and go. And, and you always feel that way, actually, if you're a good entrepreneur, because any business you're in is, is going out of business on some time period. Even Amazon is currently going out of business on some probably glacial time period. But no business lasts forever. And so you're always having to reinvent the next chapter. Look at Netflix evolving from DVDs to online streaming to content production and something else and something else and something else, right? And so if you're not feeling um, that level of urgency uh, from of needing to constantly outdo yourself, you're not probably that successful. You know, I mean, even just the law of large numbers, if, if investors want you to grow, let's say 25% for 10 straight years, well, it's pretty easy to grow 25% on $1 million of revenue. It's pretty hard to grow 25% in a single year on $1 billion of revenue. So you're having to 
kind of constantly come up with something bigger and bolder and better to 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 function as a growth company. Now, some companies are paying dividends. Some companies have natural monopolies, like you know, some that will remain nameless, and that's great for them. But most people have a competitive landscape. Most people have to constantly think through the the next big invention. So, yeah, I think that that uh, it is uh, the WIFIO phenomenon is is very real. But I will also say there is this other concept. It's a Greek concept. It's a concept called U catastrophe. So think of the word catastrophe, which is a Greek word, but then add the letter EU right in front of it. U catastrophe is the euphoric feeling that you have when you narrowly avert catastrophe or when you okay. are saved from apparent damnation. So you can think of the, those of you who watched or read The Lord of the Rings, the moment, spoiler alert, when Gandalf turns out that he's not dead is a moment of eucatastrophe in Tolkien's literature, right? Well, business is full of eucatastrophe. If you're able to reframe that near-death experience as a, a, an amazing euphoric moment that, wow, we, 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 I got out of that pickle. That was amazing. And that those are actually the things you're going to look back on with probably the greatest pride and tell stories about around the campfire with your fellow uh, you know, leaders. And I think that if, 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 if you're in the middle of one of those, it can be very hard to identify it as a, as a potentially positive thing or a source of growth. But as I have the benefit now of 12 years of experience, there have been an awful lot of those moments. And I even think that Horowitz in writing that book, I mean, the whole book is basically a, a, a fond remembrance of his time in near-death experiences right. ultimately right. succeeded. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's funny, so... So you catastrophe is the euphoria for from avoiding it. You're referencing uh, ancient Greek philosophy. Another one that comes up all the time in my circles is stoicism, mm-hmm. uh, right? So, 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 and actually, uh, Ryan Holiday is coming to speak at the Conscious Entrepreneur Summit in uh, in June. So he's going to be there and, and share how stoicism can be an incredibly powerful tool for entrepreneurs. But one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask you about is you have this matrix around what do I care about versus what's in my control, sort of this way of viewing the world. How can we use something like that if we are going through a WIPIO moment or just any kind of any of the things that happen in the day of a life of an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think, first of all, stoicism has a lot of different interpretations and and offshoots. So I think you could say, um, Yes, uh, stoicism makes sense in the sense of a life lived virtuously is unto itself a good life. I think a lot of people don't know what the Stoics really said. They think of stoicism as emotional self-repression. You know, yeah. I'm not going to ever share how I feel on the inside. You're going to get nothing but a stone-faced visage from me. I think that's not how you lead uh, with vulnerability and authenticity. Um, and I think you'll go insane trying to do that. I think it's the same as the Buddhists who say, you know, if I can convince myself that I don't care at all, then I won't experience suffering. Well, good luck with that as an entrepreneur. Um, right. That's really tough because if you don't care about something, it's hard to be successful in, in pursuing it with the level of effort and energy you need. And as soon as you start caring about something, you make yourself vulnerable because you might not get that thing. That thing is precious, you know? And so I choose to live my life caring deeply and passionately about things and exposing myself to, to disappointment. Um, but to the point about control and and so forth, I mean, I, I like this two by two matrix, and I, I don't know if I've never read it anywhere. It's, it's it's probably not original, but I think it's very helpful to me. Which is 
how much do you care and how much control do you have? So you can think briefly about all four quadrants. If you think about something that you have an enormous amount of control over, um, but it doesn't matter that much. Let's say what you have for breakfast this morning. Okay, that's not a real great source of anxiety. Um, if you think about something that you have no control over, but you don't care that much, like what the Broncos record is this year. Okay, you know, I'm disappointed. They're not probably going to make the playoffs, whatever. It's not a huge source of anxiety. If you care a lot about something, but you have a lot of control over it, like, for example, I want to make sure my kids get a good education. Well, I can choose what suburb to live in for what public school they're going to go to. And I can choose to send them to private school or put this resource in their path. Okay, not a huge source of anxiety. But then we get to the fourth quadrant. I care a lot, but I don't have much control. And there, the analogy I love to use is an airplane experiencing heavy turbulence. I hate heavy turbulence. I hate most turbulence. I think most people do. Why? Because it makes me feel like something that I care about living um, is out of my control because it is. I have no control over the operation of the aircraft, but I feel like, even though I'm not really in risk, I feel like I might just up and die, right? So in business, in, in being an entrepreneur, uh, there are different degrees of that. I think as, a, as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur, generally, the, the myth is, oh, well, a lot of things are going to be under my control. I'm going to create the culture. I'm going to create, you know, the employees who I choose and I choose the strategy and I choose the investors and I, I, I make the moves. You know, that's why I left my old company. So I'd have more control. Well, mm, there's a mm -hmm. lot of things that are actually not within your control that you're signing up for being judged by. Nonetheless, like what's happening in the markets? Are the interest rates up or down? Is there a pandemic? Is the supply chain affecting my business? Uh, you know, what happened to the stock today, maybe a function of how many people felt like buying it versus selling it. Uh, it might be that there's people who, who leave, who are critical, who you could, you didn't know that was going to happen. It was beyond your control. A competitor might don't join your market. That's entirely beyond your control. Somebody might, you know, try to undercut your pricing out of the blue. That's beyond your control. An article is written about your company on, uh, you know, and on and on and on and on. And in fact, the mission of a good entrepreneur is to ultimately relinquish control with comfort. So to delegate, as I was saying earlier, is to let go, is to let go of control. And so if you can't find a way to get more comfortable uh, with lack of control over the things that could determine something you really care about and, and ambiguity and things like that, you probably won't succeed as an entrepreneur. So it's, it's not just, okay, I absorbed that blow. I got back up, dusted myself off and let's go. It's also understanding how to function in a world where that's naturally going to cause you anxiety. You you enter a business that's naturally going to tend to generate that anxiety. And so there's ways of dealing with, uh, with that. Um, but I think that um, understanding how I'm feeling through the lens of that framework is often very helpful as a first step in, in, in sort of acknowledging that feeling being a, a way of moving through that feeling. Wow, fantastic, Brian! This is this is such a an illuminating conversation for me, and I feel like we could keep pulling on all these multiple threads for for a while. But as we look to wrap up here, there's a few questions I'd love to get your input on. Uh, yeah. First is, uh, and so simply as way of background, Ibotta was a sponsor of the 2023 Conscious Entrepreneur Summit. We're very grateful for that. We loved having uh, your team involved, um, and given your journey and everything you've gone through. I'm curious to get your definition of a conscious entrepreneur. Do you have one to share? Yeah. I mean, I think that a conscious entre entrepreneur is somebody who is uh, 
in touch with how their feeling, how their feelings affect the way that they perform in their job is willing to, uh, openly discuss the role of your feelings and your emotions and your emotional self-regulation, um, and is willing to acknowledge that, uh, it's quote unquote normal to need other people's help and guidance in, in that, whether it's something you read or not. And so it, it has to do with kind of, um, the, con- the central concept is feelings are important in determining your success and your management of your own feelings and emotional landscape will be really, really, really critical. And you can work on that. Um, and most people don't talk about it. Therefore they don't work on it. Most environments, it's not really a good idea to mention it because it sounds touchy feely or it sounds, uh, like you've, you're a basket case or whatever stigma from, from held over from before. That's why we sponsor your organization because it's important to have a space where that's the topic. I mean, I, I could get on a, yet another podcast and talk about all the revolutionary things we're doing in our industry. And, and people go, well, how's that translatable to me? I don't, I'm not in his industry. Why, why do I want to listen to a podcast on that? I find it much more interesting to speak on subjects that could potentially help some entrepreneur somewhere who's feeling these things and feeling like there's something wrong with them. Um, who maybe hears this and goes, Oh wait, no, this is incredibly normal and, and, and to be expected. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. What is your personal practice? Like you mentioned that you do therapy weekly, but what else goes into your day, days, months, and, and weeks? A lot of different things, big and small. I mean, I, you know, after Christmas and before the new year, I've traditionally had a period of just checking in on myself, my, my overall sense of well-being and, and mental health, physical health. What do I want to do differently in the coming year to improve my mental and physical health? Usually something I do with my, with my wife. Um, and we, we talk about how we can support each other in that journey. Um, I think being able to uh, take techniques that I've learned in therapy and apply them more regularly. I often go to bed. The last thing I do is I, I visualize 10 things that I'm, I'm grateful for in my life. That's something that, that regulates my emotional state. Um, and, and I think has helped ground me over time. Uh, I think trying to check myself in moments where, uh, I either am tempted to be too perfectionistic or, too much of a micromanager or too much merger, just being more aware that, okay, that's what I'm doing right now. And, and being aware of it prevents it from manifesting in, in your body in whatever way it does for you. A lot of people express stress differently. I tend to feel it in, in the breakdown of some part of my body. Um, and so learning to listen to those bellwether kind of early warning signs. Um, and, and sometimes that's journaling that, that will help me through that process. It just depends on what um, what is the nature of that problem, um, and and I think that the more that I uh, have been open to trying different approaches to addressing the stress, I think the more effective I've been at work. I think there's a, a clear correlation between my the way people feel about working with me and the work I've done on myself in the last four or five years. Wow, uh, I I would guess that's absolutely true that people do gravitate more towards you because of the work that you've done on yourself, because they see the effort you put in and because they see the results that are, that are happening. What are the, um, what are the resources that you like to share the most books, videos, courses, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will plug the video that I put on YouTube, um, which is called The Mental Health of a Startup Founder. And it's, an, it's an, a tight 58 minutes on everything I've learned as a leader with regard to mental health, including a number of different resources and, and books and um, approaches that I think could be helpful to folks. Um, you know, I think everybody has their own thing. For some people, it's reading poetry. I recently read a book called On the Shortness of Life by Seneca that uh, I heard about from the chief revenue officer of Walmart. It's about 85 pages, and I found it to be very provocative, very interesting. Um, there's there's books that that, uh, that take me to a, a completely different environment where I can escape. Uh, there's there's activities that I think there's different ways of recharging. I think there's for some people, they go to a beach and they can recharge. For me, I go to a beach and I think about all my problems and spin on them, and then I feel powerless to address them. So I'd rather be moving, doing something, I'd rather be rock climbing, I'd rather be surfing, something I, I literally can't do while thinking about work. That for me is actually a kind of form of total displacement of, of work uh, in thought, which is a form of recharging that's quite valuable to me. That's just something I've learned is important. Other people, no, they actually just want to think through things. You know, they'll go swim. Like, you know, I have a friend who whenever she's having difficulty, I'm going to the Y, I'm going to go swim. Okay. I know what that means, right? I'm going to go process so I think it's really about figuring out what works for you. The last one for me is music. Um, I more or less listen to music constantly. Wake up, listen to music in the shower, listen to music, work out, listen to music, driving to work, listen to music. I find that to be affecting my mood in a positive way. And it'll be different kinds of music. I also play music. I play piano. I find that to be therapeutic. So yeah, you, you land on something that works for you and then you you invest in that. Fantastic. What a, what a great conversation. And I just want to recognize that, you know, you are the type of person today in the startup community, especially in Colorado where, where we're based, but all over that people look up to and they look up and they see, wow, here's a successful founder CEO who started a company from scratch and had all this success. And, and, you know, we can, we can kind of see the, the glossy brochure version of Brian Leach. But what I love about this conversation and just want to thank you for is your willingness to show us everything that's behind that glossy brochure, like what is actually happening, the ups and downs, the emotions behind it, the feelings behind it, the thoughts behind it, because that's where the real action is. And I really appreciate your leadership in talking about this. I appreciate the fact that you are so open about it. And I think that allowing the whole human into the conversation is really something that we are uh, that we're evangelizing and that we're encouraging to have happen. So thank you for your leadership on that and really appreciate you being here today on the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for having me, Alex. Enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is consciousentrepreneur.us. I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast.